Voice of the Musical. pleased today to be talking to George Stiles, one half of the very long-established songwriting team Stiles and Drew, but much more besides. George, welcome. Thanks, Tim. It's nice to chat to you about stuff. Absolutely. <laughs> um, we're here with a very nice grand piano, so we have the option of going into the, um, into the musical side of things. The subtitle of this podcast, George, is Inspiration, Technique and Success. Um, I thought I'd talk about success, which is a funny word, but you've been doing this for quite a long time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there's no doubt that uh, you and Anthony are the most successful um, British songwriting team that we've had um, of late, and you, you've had successes with um, in different ways with Just So, Honk, uh, Peter Pan, and of course most recently Mary Poppins and Betty Blue Eyes. Um, could you talk about the business of being a musical theatre writer, what it's felt like over the years, how it's felt, how, whether, you, whether you felt successful, you felt in the business, you know, highs and lows, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's a very good question, Tim. I mean, and the truth is, of course, that changes almost on a daily basis. Some days you feel that you can literally do anything and that, that, that you are riding some kind of wave, and other days you you do wonder whether you know you speak to more than three men and a whippet and and in the end if you write you want to believe that you write because people might want to hear what you write i mean that is the ultimate idea isn't it if you write a book you want that book to be published and read by lots of people and the same is true if you write a song you want people to listen to it and love it um so there is that simple need i suppose and, and then that's what, I suppose, fuels the feelings of whether you're successful or not. Um, and we had a big recalibration about halfway through our writing life uh, so far. Um, and that is that sort of 15 years in, we did wonder, whether, a little bit less than that, about 12 years in, we wondered whether we were banging our head against a brick wall. We had so many early treats of meeting Cameron Mackintosh within a year of starting writing at all. Uh, we won a competition that you're all too familiar with called the <laughs> Vivian Ellis Prize. Um, in its first ever year, Charles Hart was the, as it were, runner-up, rather <laughs> hysterically. Uh, we won the, the actual prize. And, and the weird thing about it was that, you know, immediately that makes you feel, okay, I'm successful, um, in that I've got straight to the people I want to talk to. Then at the same time, there was a long time between meeting Cameron and all of that and actually having anything on that anybody might have heard. So we, we had all those initial excitements. We, we almost got a West End show with Just So, but not quite. It opened at the Tricycle in Kilburn and was meant to transfer to the Wyndhams and didn't because it wasn't good enough. Then Cameron managed to sell the project to Steven Spielberg to be made into an animated movie. Well, you know, obviously, again, another enormous benchmark, and you just think this is extraordinary. And so you think, even though by that stage we've been working on this one show for a ridiculous number of years, 
we we stuck with it again because we thought, well, this is it finally is going to break through. And I think that was that was one set of are we successful, are we not? And and there was so much promise of, of so many grand and spectacular things. Then we got down to it, really, after all of that slightly dropped away and wrote more shows. We wrote Honk, we wrote Peter Pan, I wrote more Flanders and the Three Musketeers with Paul Lee. And Anthony wrote uh, Twist of Fate for Singapore. And we, and we did our best to try and crack out some shows. And then bit by bit, those shows started to have some kind of life. A very different life, not a Cameron Mackintosh-backed life. Um, and that got very nearly, very nearly. And they got to a point in about 1999, when I did a very long Dark Night of the Souls and thought, I find this just so frustrating. It feels like we're so close to breaking through to a much wider public and a much wider understanding and I wondered whether I should go back and do my, what was going to be my first love which was to teach music and mm -hmm. to go and get a directorship at, uh, maybe at a school somewhere and you know be able to run a school music department and do all the things in in a microcosm that I was trying to perhaps do in a macrocosm and and I woke up one morning and I thought what the <laughs> bloody hell are you moaning about <laughs> You do what you love and you get paid for it. And, and that's the thing. But the truth is, Ants and I have earned a living from this since 1985. It's sometimes been an absolutely bloody awful living <laughs> and, you know, no money at all to, um, uh, to get by on. But we've managed. And at that moment, it's very odd. We both said to each other, yes, it's frustrating, but you know what? If it's going to stay like this, we've now got six or seven shows that people do do we're published by Weinbergers let's let's just be happy for what we have we can earn a living doing this and it's a it's a glorious fun life we travel to America people are doing lots of shows out there we were done in Europe with you know lots of people in the UK and it, there was there was enough we're just all right we're never going to be West End composers and at that moment <laughs> the universe answered uh, and Trevor Nunn rang up more or less within three months of that and said I've got a bit of a problem I've got nothing for the Olivier this Christmas do you remember that show you keep sending me called Honk because uh, we had sent it to him about seven times um, and he professed to really like it and he said you couldn't send me a copy could you and we said you've got seven what do you need another one for <laughs> and uh, but we put one in obviously immediately we biked it round and lo and behold Honk happened at the Olivier it won the Olivier prize um, and our life changed everything changed we then as a result of having won that we were kind of allowed to write Mary Poppins by Disney we we'd arrived on their map by beating Lion King and the success changed into a completely different gear um, and then that decade's been interesting in a different way the decade from winning the Olivier in 2000 until now those those 11 years have been very different I mean projects on very different levels um, culminating in this year's first solo West End commercial run in its own right with Betty Blue Eyes. So the word tenacity seems to spring to mind here <laughs> because, you know, if you can send a, a show to Trevor Nunn, seven, was that the actual seven times or however many times you sent yeah, it? It was, it was certainly a few. Uh, and yet, you know, the eighth time when it comes back from 
from him, from the from the. Well, universe. oddly, Trevor Trevor used to have a philosophy with casting that he used to say, "I will never accept the first three no's from somebody. If I really want them, I'll just keep asking them." Hmm. And of course, that. I mean, it, it's much easier that way around when you're trying to offer somebody a <laughs> job rather than when you're begging for a job mm. or begging for a placement of your show. Um, but it's an interesting philosophy, isn't it? If you really want something and you think it's right, just mm. go after it. That wonderful phrase, squeaky wheel. Yeah. <laughs> but it, good, yeah. It also struck me, like, like, like that song in Hans Andersen, you know, Opportunity, um, that... A lot of writers spend a lot of time kind of complaining and moaning, and we will go there sometimes and thinking that there are, the opportunities aren't, aren't out there. But at, looking at, um, at, at your sort of biography, biographies of, of you and Anthony, it seems like there have been lots of opportunities that you've taken or made for yourself, rather, not that you've just taken, but you've actually created for yourself from bringing up the Northcott Theatre and saying, we want to do a musical and then writing it. Yeah. That, that wasn't an opportunity was that, that was there before. That no. wasn't a Vivian Alice Prize. That wasn't no. a, um, a West End showcase. That was something that you made for yourself. And similarly, on, the, on a kind of the other end of the spectrum, if you like, with Mary Poppins actually saying, I think there might be something here. Let's go towards it. So Yes, we, no, no, absolutely. We, we, I'm a, I've preached this to MMD members and to anyone who will listen. Uh, from the word go, because I... Mer- Mercury Musical Development. Yes, sorry to do the short answers there. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's um, No, I, I think you've got to make your own opportunities. You have got to... You know, we're doing our best to make there be more opportunities for writers to develop material um, and get it up on its feet. But there is only one sure way to find out whether you have something that works, and that is to perform it in any way, shape or form. It can be three people in a room, it can be above a pub, in South London or it can be on the West End stage but you will find out something by simply performing your material you will find something out about it that you didn't know at least if you really are a writer you will mm. um, I think you know there are a few people who go no no they're just not doing it right mm. you, you, if you've got that mindset then really I think quite quickly you'll probably fall by the wayside but but it is collaborative the whole point of I think of working in musical theatre is that you like collaboration you like the point where you give it to a musical director to play on the piano you like the point where you hear a singer sing it and where you give a choreographer a moment you realize you don't need to sing the third chorus you can actually take it into a different time signature and you can dance it you know, those moments are the, are the joy for me. I, that's why I do it. It's why I write this and I don't sit penning symphonies or want to write film music. Well, film music is collaborative too, but I think the costs, mm. uh, creative costs of the way the system works at the moment are so huge. I'm not sure I could stand it. But that doesn't mean, gentle listener, if you want to ask me to write a movie score, that you should never go. <laughs> and where did you get your theatre muscle from? I fell into it at, at university at Exeter because the Northcott, which was then a very vibrant producing rep house in the old tradition, was um, run by a wonderful man called Stuart Trotter, uh, who was young um, and also not just young, but determined that, that not just he should direct everything there. That so, I think so many directors take theatre so they can go, yes, now I can direct Shakespeare and musicals and I can do everything. Stuart realised that he loved directing but he also loved nurturing new talent um, which is great for somebody who was I suppose 30 when he was doing it I just think that's wonderful when you're not just career building mm. for yourself at that point a very magnanimous and generous guy 
Yeah. And he and he within months of arriving at university, I was writing professional scores. My first one was for Nick Heitner. It was his third job, uh, directing a play called Murderer by Anthony Schaffer, and it it opens with ten minutes of of soundtrack. Mm. There is no dialogue. You watch somebody supposedly murder someone and chop them up on stage and put them in bin bags. And I was um and I I wrote the score to accompany <laughs> soundtrack. thing and going on a bit sweeney yes really know it then but it, it's, um, so, so I was I was so lucky and because of that that was the moment when I truly fell in love with theatre the process of it being with actors watching them rehearse seeing directors and designers working together and beginning to just you know you have epiphany moments and mine was walking into the first day of rehearsals for mm. that play and being welcomed and realizing that people's work could be as much fun as that um, and that's exciting and I, I you know I mean I had lots of build-up epiphany moments um, but that was the one before I saw Sweeney mm. which was within a year of that I saw this workshop production not workshop but uh, a studio theatre production of Sweeney um, at the drum theatre of the new Theatre Royal, as it was then, in Plymouth, and that really did change everything, because mm. Anthony and I saw that together, sure. and that's when we thought we could, we, if this is what musicals can do, then I'm interested, because yes. I didn't know they could. Yes. I didn't know they could have that ambition, rather naively. <laughs> <laughs> and that was very new then, wasn't it, Sweeney? Because it was yeah. 83, is it, that you, you yeah. met Anthony? That was that was indeed that was eighty three because yes we did Tootin' Coming in eighty four so we saw it in eighty three mm. um, so yeah when was it at the Theatre Royal Drury Lane only a couple of years before that, yes wasn't it? absolutely because it was seventy nine was the yeah I think, was was in yeah Broadway. so it was four years uh, maybe three years after its London run and which I'd also seen and it meant absolutely nothing to me I watched it from the yeah. back of the gods as a seventeen year old and been mildly diverted and nothing more <laughs> by it uh, it's extraordinary you see how. And there's another point. I think you find the right way of doing a show. Um, yes. And 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 again, I mean, I, I suppose also my love of small theatres and small rooms, like the Don Mar, like the Drum at the Theatre Royal, like you know any workshop space you go to. But but they are like the many. They're just thrilling when you're in a room where something is happening, rather than in an auditorium at the other end of which something is happening. There is a fundamentally different experience. And do you think that's influenced your writing? Probably has, hasn't it? Because we started at the, at the Watermill with Just So, and then all those years later went back to do Honk in 93 because we were comfortable with the space, I suppose. I think also, to be honest, I think it puts the magnifying glass on it. I mean, I'm not saying it's easier, but I, I, I certainly think it's truer and and you spot the holes in something a lot more uh, when you're up close and personal mm. well, it's interesting the evolution from Tutankhamun which was through composed and quite epic as yes. I understand my word you don't know her work. <laughs> 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 well you're I mean apart from everything else your website is, is wonderfully um wonderfully it's, it's informative. informative isn't it yeah. good Philip Crammond is the wonderful man who runs that for us and he's um it all began as, as just the fact that he's a great fan and he said mm. would you mind if I made a website with some of your stuff on it and it was so 
fun and informative and and not sort of um, odd. It was just inf- great. Uh, we, we said, would you mind if we sort of made it official? So mm. he's um, and ever since he's run it, and he's just he's just amazing chap, really is. So no, there's a great resource and. Um, and Tutankhamun was a bit more through composed. I mean, we just did Tutankhamun, like you mm. do when you're young. We just we saw Sweeney and then said, well, what should we write something about? Um, Anthony had been to the Tutankhamun exhibition with his parents when it was on in London uh, years before, and it made a great impact on him, the, st- the story of, of Carter and Carnarvon's mm. tenacity yes. uh, <laughs> at finding the tomb. And... Um, we wondered if we could, we read a couple of very trashy books that had talked about the curse and, and they talked about Tutankhamun's life and his death and his possible cause of death. You know, he died very young. Why was that? Was he murdered? Was there a different dynasty on the up that wanted to take over? And so we surmised the story where his high priest was his murderer um, who did, did briefly reign afterwards and married his young widow. So it seemed like a great um, mm. operatic kind of plot story to avoided getting entombed did she <laughs> she did bless her yeah and Kesanam um, and, and, and eventually a few years just three years ago we finally saw Tutankhamun's tomb in the Valley of the Kings an incredibly emotional experience and what we didn't know is that the, the body is back in the tomb um, and so he's actually lying there and that was I can't even hardly speak about it it was just so moving to realise that the beginning of our journey and and that finally sort of intersected at a moment in time. But it it, it was a great story. God knows we made a bit of a bugger's muddle. Of, no, not really. It was just naive, Tim. I mean, it had, you know, we knew we wanted big poppy cheese. We had a sample for the, there was a sergeant who looked after the tomb for nights on. And he went out there to collect a bit of equipment that the army had loaned Carnarvon, um, uh, a corporal. And he was dispatched into this sort of, you know, mosquito-driven, hideously, oppressively hot land to go and pick up his equipment. And he ended up staying there for seven years and sleeping out guarding the tomb. Uh, his name was Richard Adamson. And his, he wrote a, a book about his experiences in later life. But his arrival was a sort of one, a, a nice thing of a common man arriving and being absolutely baffled. So he was like, oh, because he's old as but even so. Something that was the first song we ever wrote, mm. and Anthony modelled the lyric on "He Touched Me," 
the Barbra Streisand's mm. sung a song, can't remember the composer, is it Judy Stein, I think? Uh-huh. He touched me. Um, his arm brushed against mine and yet he touched me. So that idea of, a, of sorry to paraphrase both Anthony as I did there, Anthony, when you listen to this, I made up a little <laughs> absolute bollocks in that last bit. Um, but you, you see the, the basic concept of a, of, of a short line, an explanation of it, and then a repeat of it. I saw him, no more than just a glance, and yet I saw him. Sort of one of the great essences of how to write a captivating lyric in the mm. first place. Mm. You immediately land the idea in the simplest possible way. Yes. And I think, you know, good, great idea, model, model. Take a, take a lyric you like the structure of and ape it yes. and see if you can make it, play it to somebody and then never have them spot that. Mm. Well, no one's ever said to us, oh, you stole that from me, <laughs> touch me. <laughs> but it's, it was, it's a very great way to start. Yeah. So, yeah, a short, punchy hook, which has the nucleus of a, of a song within it. I think so. I'm not sure we've ever gone back to that structure. And we probably mm. should. But it's it's very good. In fact, Anthony has when he, particularly when he's writing a new idea, and he'll maybe write two or three lyrical ideas ahead of me doing anything. Won't, write, won't complete the songs very often, but we'll, I write mm. the ideas. He'll very often have a song in his mind, mm. and he'll never tell me what that is. Mm. I, I forbid it. It's like, <laughs> yes. Well, it's like tech Death, music on yeah. a movie. Yes. Everyone. That's why I was talking about that earlier. Is you know I can't bear the thought that you have to sit and watch a movie to somebody else's temp score <laughs> and go, and now be better than that. Yeah. When you're listening to you know the obligatory. Mm. Thomas Newman, which yes. it always is, but anyway, uh, it, it's an interesting concept. But no, I, th- I think you know, taking great models and uh, everyone does it. Yes. Why do people go back to the symphony? Because yeah, it's yeah. a great structure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder also, in terms of you know, in success terms, thinking about Honk, which has had hundreds of thousands of productions. I mean, it's a very, very successful show, even though it's not a you know, it's not a West End no. show. And I think that's very interesting to to consider that. You know, very often we want that big West End hit, and, and nothing else will do. And yet, there are so many other ways to get your your That's material it. out there. I mean, you, know, you make the point very eloquently. That's exactly the realization we came to. There are many other ways of having a very fulfilling and amazing career. You don't actually, as we have had proved for a long time, you don't need to go anywhere near the West End or Broadway. Indeed, we've. St- we, I know it sounds ridiculous. We've actually nixed three Broadway offers on Honk because mm. we felt they didn't get the show. Mm. Um, and uh, and if they don't get it, then so much more dangerous to put it on Broadway and have it fail than to continue its life of, of enormous success done by people who find it because there's something about it that makes them want to do it. I mean, there's this other great thing. I think, you know, you are inevitably drawn to the stuff you love and so and that's true of performers it's true of when you're looking for source material you 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 must be just drawn to the stuff that speaks to you Mm. so if people put on a honk it's generally because they want to put on a honk not because somebody's hold a gun to their head and said you must um and i and i think that's what's worked for the show and continues to work for it i mean yeah it is it's i don't we've lost count it's Mm. something like seven thousand productions around the world and then there's honk junior which Mm. is many more thousands which is this cut down version that that MTI and Weinbergers do of of, of their most successful shows which is sort of aimed at uh, 7 to 12 year olds to perform Mm -hmm. Um, which is such a great idea because it gets a young a really young 
group of, of kids being into musicals from the ground up, which is just fantastically exciting. Yeah, but you, do, you know, we, you, of course you have your eyes on that prize, and therefore when Hawk finally went to the National, of all places, the first time they had ever done a British musical mm. in the history of the theatre. Absolutely. And, and only about the third original musical. I mean, the second there was Gene Seberg and, and us. Yeah. That was it. That was it until that moment. That was it. Um, I'm very pleased to say that you know Nick Hyten has made sure that that, <laughs> that record has long since been <laughs> demolished. So, um, but no, it it, it it was extraordinary, and and of course, it was very interesting when we first took the show to, touted it around in 1993. We took it to David Pugh, um, an old friend, and David said, "I think it's wonderful, but I think it will only ever work in the way you want it to work at the RSC or at the National." We sort of wouldn't forget that, thing, can't we? And he said, well, yeah, it will be tricky. Mm. Um, and then we started talking about Mary Poppins. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. I mean, going back to that point, yes, I mean, we did actively go after that. Once we heard from David that a possible stage production of Mary Poppins was in the offing um, and that they might want new songs, although we were baffled as to why they might want new songs, we wrote one anyway to prove that we could sound as much like the Sherman Brothers as possible, which is where we came up with um, I'm practically perfect in every way. Practically perfect, so people say. Again, learning how the Shermans tended to place title so mm. many times mm. within a song. Mm. And that's actually an interesting footprint of, of, of yours. So it feels like going back to the source material and saying, how can we make this, this hook, this catchphrase work in a different way? Thinking of Neverland and, yes. and Just So as well, you know. Yeah, well, Kipling had said with the Just So stories, he'd said, you know, they were named because his daughter, as he was telling them, would say, no, 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 Daddy, you have to tell it just so, <laughs> if he changed the words in, in the order. So, you know, if it wasn't the great grey green greasy, it was the great green grey greasy. Mm -hmm. In Popo River, she would say, no, 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 must be just so. Mm. And that's how they came about. So, yeah, you have to write a title somewhere. Just so we all know funky score just so actually it sort of reminds me of mm. once on this island or something you know it's um thank you and the, the the take the ladies out to dinner that's a really kind of that's got a real nice groove to it yeah that's fun isn't it? <laughs> that came about from a want to take the ladies out for dinner want to take the ladies out to Came from writing a very 
perhaps our most Sondheim-esque <laughs> song ever um, for The Tricycle. Anthony had written a song called Love Bites um, for these characters, the, the hunted and the hunters. Mm. And I just couldn't get a handle on it. I just couldn't set it in a way that sounded anything other than completely crap to my ear. And so we, we had to abandon that. And he, to this day, likes the lyric. And I, to this day, can't work out what to do. <laughs> so he had this idea of, we want to take the ladies out. In other words, we want to take them out. Mm. In for East End bowls. Yeah. Um, uh, but so, justify it, we want to take the ladies out for dinner. We want to take the ladies out to eat. So you're constantly going between, you know, playing, literally playing with how language is used. And we had set it like this. version in yeah. rehearsals and Cameron said it's just not working and it wasn't yeah. I mean it had I thought that gave yeah. them the East End yeah. we're going to take you out and then for dinner but it just didn't play and it meant the whole song was sort of relentless hard and the busy 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 you know you got a sort of Sweeney stroke um, digga 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 sort yeah. of uh, company feel yeah. uh, um, to that but actually, don't do a ball, but I'm not getting married. Exactly. And and Cameron just said it's got to have an easier, more fun feel. And he literally locked me in a broom cupboard mm -hmm. with him at, at the tricycle, which was the only place we could put a piano uh, when we were rehearsing in the space, because we were already previewing, I think. Well, we certainly rehearsed teching. And he said, What else can we do with it? And I just I don't know. I said, it is essentially that it's got this. And I played the chord like that, and he said, Well, that sounds jazzy. That chord. It is because of yeah, the sixth. And so from that, he said, well, couldn't it have a. Sorry? A ninth in there somewhere. Yeah. 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 So, well, or second, whichever way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, sorry. Um, so he said, that sounds jazzy. He said, well, if, if, if my dad played a song like that, how would you riff on that? How would you turn that into a into a vamp, into a, into a jazzy fit? And so I literally split up the chord. Playing it up from the bottom, going to the other side. Well, you couldn't, and then over that, it took me ages to get the feel in my body, but then to feel, we want to take the ladies out for dinner. We want to take the ladies out to eat. And immediately, we put it in, the song got lost from the first moment of it and became and then we put lovely jazz harmonies in for the two boys mm. weaving over the top of it and Martin Kosh did it brilliant he actually helped me refine the vamp as well uh -huh. um, who was the, the the arranger on the show yeah. musical supervisor and he was just it was one of those collaborative things yes yeah. and the song didn't get thrown away yes um, it suddenly becomes you turn it into something which is suave and, in, and ingratiating as opposed to threatening and aggressive. Exactly. I'd gone completely the wrong way at it. Yeah. I'd gone, no, the first statement is we want to take them out. Yeah. And indeed, but the whole, the whole joy of the song is they're trying to persuade the naive elephant's child that them, their motives are good. And mm. between themselves, they have the little jokes of, you know, mm. we, uh, you know, we're going to, we're going to, enjoy our evening with relish and all the other bad jokes that are in there <laughs> so um 
Like that is not even Anthony's lyric either. And I'm so sorry. Where are you when I need you? <laughs> yeah, well, no, in America's the answer. Anticipate each rendezvous with, with relish. Yes. Yeah. yeah good. You see. <laughs> You're fantastic. Well, I, well, I, I actually, I, I remember an earlier version because I because there was a TV. It's interesting to talk about Cameron, which we will do a bit more, um, which we must do a bit more. But um, there was a documentary, TV documentary, which must have been '95 or, or, or earlier. Um, in which you were playing that song. That it was, was an earlier version. It was South of... Bank show, I think. Oh yeah, that's right. Cameron, that's right. Which was filmed around the time of Just So. Just So, so going into the West End. Oh, not the case with me. So yeah, exactly. So it was. It was very much the. Um, it was very much the centre of the yes. examination of his process. Of yes. Yeah, and we recreated that moment for the South Bank show uh, in the broom cupboard. <laughs> yes, in the same right. broom cupboard, but we did recreate it. Yeah, and despite the epiphany that you had with Sweeney Todd, and also you were on the um, 1990 uh, uh, course at Oxford, weren't you, the well, sometime? Now, oddly, urban legend has it that we were, <laughs> we were not allowed. Cameron said, oh. no, you've had your time with Steve, because right. we had indeed had his personal notes when mm. he came to see Just So at the Watermill um, because it was directed by Julia McKenzie, his great friend, as yes. well as Cameron producing it. And so Julia said, Steve, you must come. I'm, there are things I can't solve. Please mm. come. And he said, well, I'll come, but I'm not going to give critique. And <laughs> he said, I just can't do that. And then we, we he, he was sitting in the third row in the Watermill. No one can hear you scream and no one can certainly get away with being unseen when you're Steve. Um, mm. And within three minutes... We saw him lean over at his neighbour and say, do you have a pen and paper? <laughs> uh, and, and, and he kind of I mean, on the back of the cigarette packet, he yeah. just, he said, I mean, his best note of all was he said, it was only when the elephant's child sang, and in that version he didn't sing it until nearly the interval, he sang, there's no harm in asking why everything should be just so. He said until he sang that phrase he didn't know why he was there and he was absolutely right I mean it was the second song we ever wrote and it was in the Vivian Ellis prize mm. um, and it, it, it is literally it does sum him up there's no harm in asking that is the elephant's child's view of the world if you're gonna find stuff out you gotta ask you don't sit there and wait for someone to tell you and and so we moved of course we moved to the position of the song mm. um, and he said you know that's that's when I knew what your point of view was yes. on the show. Yes. And, and it, that was the best note of all. Mm. I mean, he gave other great specifics, but mm. that was the big one. But you've escaped the Sondheim footprint, it seems, um, in terms of your... It feels to me that, you know, the great dominant force for so many of us, mm. you, you, you've managed to establish a musical style, which... Maybe that's you're making <laughs> you're making a slight face now. No, the, I'm making a face because I I, I I know what you're saying. I mean, yes, we have. There's no doubt we don't sound like Sondheim. I mean, right there as I demonstrated, <laughs> we're, we're, anyone is is capable of doing a bad imitation because uh, he's so distinctive. Mm. Um, but no, I mean, I, I don't see the point. Um, just as I don't see the point in trying to sound like Andrew, mm. like Weber, uh, or, or Stephen Schwartz, or anybody else you strive to sound like yourself and for years I didn't feel that we did very much sound like ourselves um, and then suddenly you realise we absolutely do and we always have mm. 
Um, and I think that's very odd. I, I, for years, I mean, Cameron actually used to say it to us. He said, you haven't found your voice yet. I don't think he was right. When I look back, I absolutely don't think he was right. I don't think we were very good, but that's very different from not having found your voice. I think we always knew that the lineage from Gilbert and Sullivan, Coward, Flanders and Swan, was there, mixed in with a pop sensibility, which is what we grew up with. You know, we, you know, I, you know 1979 was one of the great years for music. There were so many fabulous albums that came out that year, and that was, you know, my my 16th going into 17th mm. year, which is when you, I suppose, perhaps, you know, you know, some of your greatest songs arrive in your heart, don't they, and in your mind. And so, you know, that's that was some. Um, that's who I felt I was. I was half, I was half a classical musician as well from my training, but but that stuff was you know what made me cry and laugh and remember hot summers and wild romances yes. and all those things. And so I always thought, yeah, the obvious thing to do is to fuse these things together, yeah. fuse great lyrics with that. And then people generally pop songs. It's not all about the lyric. It's partly about the lyric. Whereas with theatre songs, you're telling a story mm. with any luck through songs, and so lyrics are really every bit 50% if mm. not more of the equation I've always felt mm. and so yeah I think that's partly that's marked us out from the beginning mm. tell me what you feel about um, the sort of guiding principles that you use when you're when you're writing I well obviously lyrics or, or music are there things that you find yourself going to think things that you forbid yourself gosh long I question. don't know it's not a long question it's it, it, it's just goes to the core of how you work doesn't it and I'm not sure I even know the answer Tim I I know that inherently there are things that I just don't like to do I can't miss stress I just because or any anything where where you don't do the natural fall natural cadence of, of a word just doesn't seem right to me I would rather have a double upbeat into a chorus so and before we knew what we said, I'd rather do that than, than I would say, no, no, there's only ever one upbeat. And before we knew we could, I could never do that. It's got to always be before, it, uh, again, you can't start, and people do do that stuff. And I just think that, t t as Steve has always said, unwittingly, that just uncomforts an audience. You, you just feel unsettled. Um, your, your ear is drawn to the lyric for the wrong reason because it doesn't sit the way it should. So, so I'm pedant about that, um, and uh, I, I'm in in terms of how else we approach it. I, I suppose the main thing is really a, a seeing a, a song in its context and and trying to understand fu fundamentally what the song is trying to do, how I want the song to make the audience feel indeed make me feel in the first place do I want to go oh god this is beautiful or oh this is so sad or what fundamental emotion do I want and then there can be lots of surprises and there can be lots of twits and twists and turns twits and turns as well <laughs> um, another roll call for the uh, <laughs> yes. for the stocks <laughs> so so I don't know I, I don't have rules with it I do know that short titles are phenomenally useful just so uh, honk look at him the fact you everything is reduced to a motivic beginning so look at him now then children let's not make a fuss look at him 
Are you sure he's really one of us? So, so, ba-da-da becomes ba-da-da, ba-da-da, ba-da-da. It's all a tiny little area of mm. intervals all over a fourth. I mean, it's not deliberate. It just, yeah. I think I fall to these things. Limpopo River started off another very fat now I think about it a uh, very similar thought but it began as a noodle a melodic noodle not as a title it began as just noodling just falling from the tonic to that seventh and, and thinking or the major seventh and thinking there's something nice about that off beat Playing that noodle to Anthony, and his, in his mind, was already the great, great green greasy phrase. So that you must go to the banks of offbeat. You must go to the banks of the great, great green. To the banks of the green and greasy Limpopo River. Set So, you know, a very unpromising in a way lyric, but when I say about how a song makes me feel, I know that that song makes me feel, oh, this place is slightly mystical. It's a little bit anthemic. It's a little bit hymnic. And when I thought, actually it does, you know, it's a straight statement of a, of a great intent of some kind. You must go, you must go. That then I thought, well, if it's hymnic, then it needs a descant. And, and again, I suppose things I drew on early on in, in writing was the fact that I did a lot of church music when I was growing up uh, at my school, and I loved last verse descants in hymns, you know. Uh, oh, come all ye faithful, you know. Sing choirs of angels, sing in exaltation. All that, it's just fabulous stuff. It gets the hairs up on my neck every single mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. It can never go by and it doesn't work for me. So I thought, well, why not do that with that? No one's, I, don't, I wasn't aware of people doing descants in, in musical theatre songs. So against that, the, the elephant, when he gets the message, at the end of the song, he sings, So I must go to the banks of the Limpopo River Set about with trees So I must go made it then feel like a heroic quest. So what was a quiet, slightly, ooh, this place is dangerous, becomes, come on, let's do it. Mm. And I suppose those are my favorite songs because they grew incredibly organically between Anthony and I. Mm. As you get older, you tend to go, well, it could be one of these. Mm. Mm. Should we just write this as a simple A-A-B-A, mm. which is perhaps the structure we've written most in our lives um, in the, they are, in a way, the simplest and most pleasing, I think, mm. you, of song forms. That you, you set out a, a simple four, five, six-line idea, you set it out again, 
you go away from it in a bridge. I think it's the gr- it's probably the greatest American songbook format. Yes. Yes. Um, and you can and for a jazz format, you can go back to that as many times as you like. And coming away, you know, you're a D major and coming away for your so you know. Voyage and Return, isn't it? It is, like yeah, the, exactly. Like the, uh, the, the plot of Honk that you superimposed on the Cinderella story. It's, Gosh, get yeah. you <laughs> with your analysis. I suppose that's right. I don't know. I mean, that's you make a very interesting point. I mean, it, you do teach it and you think about it, and I teach it. That's a big word. I, I talk about it. I lecture about it occasionally. And, and I do, you know, I've made myself a list of notes. What's interesting is I try and think about it for the first time every time I'm asked the question. Because mm. sometimes, some days my answer's different. Yeah. Um, to, to how all these things work, I do know that as as I was sort of starting to say, as you get older, I think you you do tend to fall into well, this has worked, so shall we do this again? Mm-hmm. And and we try and guard against that as much as we possibly can, because lyricists quite like riffing on an idea. That is, in, there's a big part of lyric writing that is riffing on an idea. Mm. Um, it, it's the kind of hey, guys, look at me, isn't that great? <laughs> Bit of it. And of course, the, the stuff that you really remember, I think, are, are, are those bits that are actually somehow have clawed a very different thought in f- somehow um, and do the unexpected. Mm. And I, I think that's, you know, all sorts of things work. Uh, talking in Betty Blue Eyes, you've got a song that is absolutely full of in D flat all day today. Sorry about that, folks. <laughs> I wrote it originally in that key. Let's do it in a different key. Betty Blue Eyes, Betty Blue Eyes, there were never two more true eyes. That thing of doing how many oohs can we do in, in the song, you know, when I look into your two eyes, mm. all of those. Misconstrue uh, eyes. Misconstrue eyes, exactly, which is glorious. Um, Though that is one of those, and yet it is at the heart of it, it is just a song of love mm. for somebody called Betty. So that works very, very well. But it's the kind of it, it definitely has that nod, I think, back to a time, uh, of, as I've often said, with the great American writers. I think there was a big degree that they were second generation. Their parents, their, their first language was very often not English. And so they were the first generation to be brought up. And, and all around them, they, they heard broken English and they, and they heard other languages. And I think they, they gloried in what English could be. And they had that, that generational love of discovery, which is why there's all this wonderful, marvellous, mm. why there's, there are so many great combined and elided words in Gershwin and in Porter. And, you know, Porter's just absolute, talk about showing off, I mean, absolute, but with such brilliance Mm. that you you can't fail to be delighted by it. And we still are, even though Mm. we don't understand half the references in You're the Tops, you know, Mm. there are are characters (laughs) that we have no idea what the lyrics mean. It doesn't matter. You get the point. And you delight in language. And Anthony does that. But at the same time, in, 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 in Betty, one of the, one of the most, I guess, remarked on songs, and certainly one of the songs we're proudest of having ever written, is uh, he has magic fingers, he 
he has a magic hands, and I just know somehow that he understands, and his touch is tender when he hits the spot, and he talks about conditions that I never knew I'd got. Well, the first four lines of that, very unusually, were not written by Anthony. Mm. They were written by me. Uh -huh. And that's because Ron and Dan, the book writers, had written in their treatment, he has magic fingers. He has magic hands. Well, <laughs> that was just There's a, a couple of right lines there. in their rubric about what the song might be. Yes. And immediately, that rhythm just worked for me. And yes. I, I heard, pick a more friendly key for me. <laughs> he has magic fingers. He has magic hands. So one's feminine, one's masculine. I suppose that's what appealed. I didn't analyse it. I just set it immediately. And, and then taking it on. And I just know somehow that he understands. Then Ants took it on. And he shows such kindness that I long for more. He reminds me of my husband as he was before the war, cycle of fifths, mm -hmm. but a very, for me, I don't know why, it still delights me, I won't use any other word. This chord. I don't know where it came from. I don't think chordally, I don't think analytically, I don't think I've just played an A7 and I'm gonna play mm -hmm. an E7, I just play and I, and I try and write both at the piano and away from it. Once I got that, I knew that was right. And then, which felt, that modality just felt very Vaughan Williams, very English. Yeah, and I so. just felt that whole thing tied together. And I knew at that moment what the score of Betty had to be. It had to, to pull together Britishness mm. and yearning and a sense of loss, but also trying to look forward. I mean, you know, complicated things. They're, they're just, they, you register them almost cognizantly as you write, I think. But you, it's dangerous to get absolutely buried under it because then you start being arch and clever mm. and it doesn't work at all. And I think the reason that song speaks to people and why people, you know, night after night, dabbing away tears in it was, was that thing, it does that thing. It has a big emotional agenda, the song. Mm. And it was entirely Roland Down's brilliant idea. I mean, those characters don't exist. That situation doesn't exist in the Bennett original. Yeah. But they understood have that three... we had to contextualise what everyone had just gone through. And you hear it sung by three different women mm. uh, who are all on stage simultaneously. And, it, it... and the voices build up for yeah. the last chorus. And the, and the unexpected is that the last person is so traumatised by what happened to her that she actually can't speak. And so she simply hums the melody. And the other women have and we have just in three parts and it works with a completely a cappella. And and as soon you know, you, you hit those moments and you just think, Yes, 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 this is why I do this. And I still I, I look back at the writing of that song and I'm still thrilled by it. It mm. still gets me. Mm. Isn't it odd? Uh, and, and you pray for those. You pray for those in every score. And I think the fact that the score has something like that and has Betty Blue Eyes, which is, you know, daft and whimsical, 
um, but I hope hooky, um, is sort of, is why I love the show and why, why I know it will come back and, you know, people will, will enjoy it for years to come. I'm, I'm confident of that. You know, you know certain things by the time you get to this stage. <laughs> and then you also know other shows that, you know, you say, yeah, there's lots of great stuff in it, but fundamentally there's something about it that doesn't work. Mm. And that's harder. Mm. <laughs> opportunities for new writers. You, yeah. You've you've had opportunities as new writers. You've won competitions. You had the, you had best song awards um, from the from the Vivian Ellis to the Danish best musical competition. Where we worked one best song, the Olivier's, and you've also been a great supporter of new musical initiatives through Mercury, through um, <coughs> the Highland Quest, yes. which was not only a competition but it was also a, a sort of masterclass workshop as well. Um, what do you think about competitions, choir competitions? What do you think about them in themselves? They're imperfect, but they, I think, galvanise. And certainly in our case, they gave us, uh, they gave us two things. I think they gave us a motivation to get a project to a certain point in order to fulfill the criteria and enter the competition. So in other words, it, it, it's a, a, a goalpost to aim for, yeah. a catalyst. And, and secondly, I think the public acknowledgement of, of winning uh, any kind of prize in those, being, being picked out, being noted in any way, even if you just, you know, even if the judge simply says, I particularly want to mention this song, although we're not awarding the prize, mm. I thought such and such about it was great. Yes, I did mention your, the prize which you and Anthony fund yourself, which is part of the Stephen Sondheim Student Performer of the Year Award. So, you know, you're, you're, you're right in there putting your, your money and your expertise. Well, a tiny, you're... tiny way, Tim. But yes, I mean, it, it is, I do believe that, that those, that the public acknowledgement is, going back to what I first said about why we write, we want to, we want to be heard. And, and therefore, for anybody to, to point out that, this might be good and it might be worth you sticking with it, I think is the stuff that you live off. Mm. And I know that we did. I absolutely know that we did. And certainly with the Danish competition in 1996, the Musical of the was a huge competition with massive money behind it. Televised nationally in Denmark. Um, the, the, the radio orchestra played for it, you know, like our BBC concert orchestra, mm. the equivalent of the Radio Unterhaltungsorchestrit. It doesn't sound Danish at all, but that's that's the, how it's spelt. Mm. Um, I'm actually off to Denmark again on Thursday. Denmark's been very good to me for my Three Musketeers, which is opening there. But um, I I think competitions are worthwhile. I really do. Like all prizes, you know what's best. Mm. Who knows? Mm. You know. Um, but but what's remarkable? What's worth drawing attention to? Yeah, I think that's great. And I think I think that's why people go on having best new play competitions mm. and, and writing prizes generally I think it does help it's it's an easy way of elevating things mm. to a larger public audience as well mm. which is why I think it's great that the Styles and Drew prize is under the banner of the Young Performer of the Year Steve it's Steve's responsibility Steve said I you can have a prize in my name but you've got to do some new material mm. they've got to not just sing me because mm. the sometimes society who set the, the competition up originally wanted to just have them sing sometimes songs mm. and Steve ever the encourager said no no they've got to sing new stuff so it seemed perfect that Mercury mm. got involved which is how they did and then it seemed perfect that we set up a song competition I mean we, we it literally just came 
organically. Mm. Um, so no, I think more big prizes really. Mm. I mean, the Danish prize meant the world to us. I yeah. mean, for a start, it gave us some money that we lived off for another year to write, mm. um, and, the, and the recognition was fabulous. Mm. So yeah, what do what? How was what was your experience? Was it a good thing for you back when you were sweet sixteen? When I <laughs> was sixteen, um, amazing. This is, this you were sixteen. Yeah. This is, so this is the Vivian Ellis Prize, nineteen ninety. Um, well, it's interesting, and I, I, I was going to ask you the same question because this is about you. It's not about me. Um, <laughs> it's all about me. Tried um, to turn it around. <laughs> I tried very hard. Well, because there is a burden, you know. The Vivian Ellis um, was an extraordinary thing, and it had extraordinary people involved with it and I was wondering if you felt that that burden um I mean it feels like from 1985 you you rode the crest of that way for quite a long time you say that lots of uh, very exciting things happened for you but was there also a sort of sense of the burden of you know you you've got this backing of of Cameron you know you've had your work performed in front of Andrew and I don't know who else was on the panel whether it was Tim that year um it was tim and don black and uh, alan dan j lerner was in the audience yeah. i mean it was uh, dan crawford the king's head it was an amazing lineup and yes i mean yes you're right it's a burden and of course once the world has drawn attention to the fact that you might be you know the next great thing um yeah you feel like you've got to deliver that and i'm i've no doubt there is there is always a downside for every upside um but i've always said that in the end, I wouldn't have had my career path go any other way. I hate that expression. I wouldn't have had my life go any other way because I think by the time we did get some real success, I think we absolutely knew what to do with it. And we relished it and enjoyed it and continue to do so um, every step of the way. I mean, honestly, uh, and it sounds easy and cheesy to say so, but we still absolutely adore what we do, um, possibly more now than we ever have. Mm. And, and, I, and I think grafting for it and having the nearly was a really really good thing for us because it made us want it very much and it made us realize that we had the opportunity so now we couldn't blame any other circumstances <laughs> if we didn't if we couldn't pull it off it was nobody's fault but our own which is that's quite high pressure because mm. normally you can find a million reasons why it just hasn't quite happened yeah well, that's a fantastic place to end. And I do want to come back for part two because there's so many more questions. <laughs> but, yeah, go um, on, we'll do it. Yeah. We'll do duets next. And <laughs> you can sing all the lyrics that I got wrong. <laughs> Just been a, oh. I don't need to play the notes that you can't play because you seem to be able to play them all. Which is <laughs> um, George Styles, on behalf of Voice of the Musical, thank you so much. Thank you, Tim. I have enjoyed it enormously. Thank you for listening. Please go to voiceofthemusical.com where you'll find links to the Styles and Drew website, as well as all the other interviews in this series.